the Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 6, and we'll begin our reading at verse 7. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And may God bless that reading to our hearts this evening. Amazing Grace may be music to your ears, but to some, it's not such a sweet sound. In our scripture reading, Paul closes off this particular letter to the Galatians with this statement, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. But of course, there was a time when the writer of those words didn't believe in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in his life, Paul, or as he was then, Saul of Tarsus, was heavily dependent on who he was and what he did to please God. It monopolized his thinking, and he was totally convinced in that belief. Saul of Tarsus wasn't into grace at all. And there are those today who profess to be Christians, but they are not fully trusting in Jesus Christ. Their knowledge of the gospel is sketchy, so whilst acknowledging that Christ did do something, uh, they have to add something of their own good works or their church attendance or other aspects of self-righteousness into their salvation mix. And frankly, they don't see anything very amazing about grace. But there may be an even greater tragedy. Some who are true believers in their thinking at least, 
can lean toward a contribution of human merit that should be added to the work of Christ. And there are those today who are not very happy with the biblical emphasis on man's total inability to save himself. When their gospel is presented, they prefer to minimize the bad news as much as possible in order to maximize the good news. Now, we are all concerned with presenting a positive impression, and so that may sound very worthy. But you see, the gospel is a message of amazing grace because it contrasts the woeful guilt of man with the wonderful grace of God. And so John Newton rejoices in the grace that saved a wretch like me. Or Stuart Townend speaks of the grace of God which makes a wretch his treasure. So that we must never slide into thinking that there is something in me or my family or even in what I believe that merits some favor with God. The fact is, I was lost and I needed to be found. I was blind and I was made to see. I was dead and I was made alive. And that is nothing less than amazing grace. Now, there are some in the Galatian churches who didn't see anything very amazing about grace. In most of Paul's letters to the early churches, if you're familiar with them, you will know that he begins with thanksgiving. He finds something there to commend them even when a little later in the letter he's going to have to deal with some issues that need to be dealt with. But in this epistle, he has to begin his letter by writing in chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. What a statement. Paul is astonished, or New King James Version, he marvels, he is amazed that they are defecting from their faith and that they are doing it so quickly. These believers are in danger of leaning toward a gospel which they believe provides an alternative and legitimate choice. The King James Version rendering is like this. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. There are two different Greek words translated with the English word another in our New Testament. One of those words means another of the same kind. And you remember that when Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before his departure, He speaks of the Father giving you another counselor. In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, another of the same kind. But the other word means another of a different kind. And the believers in Galatia thought they were considering another gospel of the same kind, whereas it was a completely different gospel to the gospel that the apostle had presented to them. And the word different is significant because that's the word that the NIV and the New King James Version uses. 
It was as different as night from day, from death, from life, and as a lie from the truth. Well, we need to ask ourselves, why have they done this? The situation has arisen because of the presence in the church of a number of Jews, or they were termed Judaizers, who believed that some of the Old Testament ceremonial practices must also be carried on by New Testament believers. It was all right believing in Jesus Christ, but you can't trust in Christ alone. They didn't believe in amazing grace. Their suggestion was that you had to practice certain parts of the law in order to gain the favor of God. But of course, such a message destroys the grace of Christ. Because once you add anything to the biblical gospel, it stops being the gospel. And it is no longer amazing grace. Indeed, it's no longer grace at all. Grace excludes works of all kind. And this is therefore one of the major issues that Paul addresses in this epistle. He reasserts the truth of justification by faith. He rejects this different gospel of the legalists. It's faith, he says, not works. It's justification by faith, not legalism. It's freedom, he says, not bondage. Therefore, anyone who preaches any other gospel, and then chapter 1 and verse 8 shows us his exaggeration, including me, he says, or even an angel from heaven. Well, that would never happen, of course. It's hypothetical. But he's saying, if that did happen, they must be eternally condemned. It is so vital that the apostle calls down God's eternal judgment on these false teachers. But is it really that important? Surely Christians do have different interpretations on what the Bible teaches. And it's entirely possible that believers may have different views on what we often term secondary matters, forms of worship, church government, even some issues of doctrine. But believers cannot disagree on the essential gospel of Christ, that is, the utter sinfulness and helplessness of man and the absolute sufficiency of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul recognizes the importance of this true gospel and he condemns these false teachers in such fierce terms. John Stott has written a lovely book uh, called The Cross of Christ and in that book he says the glory of Christ was at stake. To make men's works necessary for salvation, even as a supplement to the work of Christ, is derogatory to his finished work. It is to imply that Christ's work was in some way unsatisfactory, and that men need to add to it and improve on it. It is in effect to declare the cross redundant. And that is what Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 21, If righteousness could be gained through the law... Christ died for nothing. Besides, people's souls are at stake. To corrupt the gospel 
is to confuse the way of salvation. Well, all of this is the background to Paul's letter. And what we have in the passage that we read together is a final warning to these Judaizers and a comparison between their position and that of Paul. And so, just two points this evening. Firstly, for the Judaizers, there was the show without the substance. The show without the substance. Verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Well, nobody would suggest that good impressions aren't important. But they really should be based on reality. The Judaizers were more concerned with window dressing, with the packaging, or to use perhaps today's word, with image. And Paul exposes their motives because they are not, as we shall notice, really interested in the spiritual welfare of the Galatians. They're concerned about themselves, their own honor, their own reputation. Now, image is vitally important today to those in the public eye. Position and power and lucrative sponsorship deals often depend on the image conveyed. And it's important that these individuals give the impression of, for instance, a good marriage or of a clean lifestyle, whatever the truth might be. And what they're doing, of course, is wanting to make a good impression outwardly. And as far as these uh, Galatians were concerned, by requiring circumcision and ceremonial observance of the law, they were presenting a a religion they thought that made people look good outwardly, or King James Version, in the flesh. But you know as well as I do, my friends, that that is not the sum total of the message of the gospel. The gospel is more radical than that. The gospel addresses a spiritual problem, the problem of the heart, the problem of the nature, so that any effort at mere outward change is inadequate. The gospel doesn't simply change the packaging. What is required is a radical change of nature, yes, that does make a difference, but from the inside out. And so why were these Judaizers concerned about this outward show? Firstly, says the apostle, they do it to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They have no intention of joining the ranks of those whom Jesus said the world would hate, John 15. That is, those who were his committed followers. They want to be accepted within the church, but they don't recognize and they certainly do not accept themselves the terms of discipleship that Jesus set down, cross-bearing and so on. To follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly then and now means persecution at some level or another, just as Jesus had promised. But you see, there was a way for these individuals to avoid persecution by the anti-Christian Jews. If they pressed for Jewish ritual, if they didn't condemn justification by the law, they could save face. And in doing this, says Paul, they're more concerned about preserving their own safety. 
They're trying to work their way back into favor with their relatives and their former friends. Well, let's pause for a moment and suggest that some of this can be very challenging to us. Because there is the ever-present danger of making what you and I think is a small compromise to the full outworking of the gospel in order in our lives in order to avoid the pressure of being marginalized by a disbelieving and hostile world. Just a little change here and just a little change there. Nothing significant, but it's a compromise. Some Christians are desperate to belong. Separation doesn't appeal to them one little bit. And Jesus made it clear that we don't belong. We don't belong to the world. And any one of us can be susceptible to this. But there was a second reason why the Judaizers pushed this salvation plus faith uh, works agenda. He says, verse 13, they want to boast about your flesh. One Bible commentator says, the Judaizers were not really interested in the moral transformation of the Galatian Christians. They were not teaching circumcision and the law so that the Galatian churches would attain new heights of spirituality. Their own inconsistency in following the law demonstrated that devotion to the law was not their basic motivation. What they were really interested in was being able to boast to their fellow Jews that they really were good Jews. Look at all the Gentiles we've circumcised and brought into the Jewish nation, they could boast. So that they sought to earn credit with the Jews by proselytizing Gentile Christians, forcing them to live like Jews. But as we've noticed, these Judaizers were preaching up something they didn't actually practice. Verse 13, Paul says, not even those who are circumcised obey the law. They were hypocrites, just like those condemned by the Lord years before. You and I are centuries removed from the Judaizers, but there is still room for boasting about the flesh. That it is easy to feel proud of what we've achieved or how much better our Christian life is than that of others we know. And it is even possible to demand from others what we are not achieving ourselves. And that is hypocrisy and a particular danger of those who are teachers. But you see, boasting in these things is not only inappropriate, it is also inaccurate because we don't have anything to boast about. As Chuck Swindoll says, Christianity isn't about our achievements. It's not about what we can do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Every ounce of credit for who we are and for the hope that we have goes to Calvary and to the Savior who died there. And you see, if you and I focus on those things, then it's God who gets the credit and ultimately the glory. If everything directs people to Calvary and to the Savior who died there, it's God who gets the credit, not us. This is Paul's last word to these churches, and he's making it clear where he stands. For the Judaizers, it was the show. 
without the substance. But for Paul, it was the cross with its crucifixion. Verses 14 and 15. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The supreme boast and glorying of a Christian is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is interesting because the cross is about the last thing the natural man would think of boasting about. In the first century, we're told, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was foolishness to the Gentile. Then and now, a message about a young Jew being crucified doesn't have a lot going for it. And even when we do have a true understanding of the meaning of the cross, that is, that this young Jew is the Son of God, and that he is dying there for the sins of the world, then I'm a member of the world. And it isn't something that I want to boast about. What the cross is doing is exposing our own desperate condition, our own spiritual bankruptcy that made the suffering of Jesus Christ necessary. When people see a portrayal of Christ on the cross, albeit a picture or maybe a film, TV program, they are distressed by it. And there have been those who have come to me following the uh, uh, film, The Passion of the Christ, and said, why did they do those dreadful things to that man? Well, the question that we need to be asking is, what made it necessary for that man to go to the cross. That I shouldn't feel sorry that Jesus Christ suffered in that way. What I should feel sorry about is that he suffered in that way for me, because of me. And so the message of the cross doesn't commend us in any way at all. It's nothing to be proud about. And yet Paul says the believer is able to boast in the cross. What sense does that make? Well, I believe it's only as we see our own unworthiness and as we pour contempt on all our pride that we see the contrast in the wonder of God's glorious love for us. It's then that we appreciate just how amazing God's grace really is. Paul would have said amen to the words of Elizabeth Clefane when she wrote upon the cross of Jesus, mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. That was the ground of Paul's hope as a Christian. And that was the doctrine which, as an apostle, he was resolved to preach. And even if his faithfulness to this gospel brought trouble and trials, he was ready not only to submit to them, but to rejoice in them. Remember when he wrote to the Corinthians? 
He spoke of carrying this treasure in jars of clay and of the fact that it really didn't matter what happened to the clay jar so long as the treasure was kept safe. He was a man who had had a remarkable pedigree and reputation for adherence to the law. He tells the Philippians, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. But now as a believer, he says, he no longer has any confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3. 3. And in that verse, he describes believers as those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And he actually says, these are the true circumcision. These are the true believers. Who are they? Those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul's boasting in the cross of Christ has brought separation from the world. It means, he says in verse 14, that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, he's used that kind of language before. In probably what is the best-known verse in the epistle to the Galatians, in 2.20, he tells his readers that he has been crucified with Christ. Well, we're very familiar with that phrase and we're familiar with that verse. What does he mean by that? Can I try and describe it in this way? When Jesus Christ died, he did actually die. And in that sense, he became insensible to everything around him. That is the characteristic of a dead person. He could no longer see. He could no longer hear. He could no longer feel the touch of someone else. It was as if everything around him ceased to exist. The world was dead to him. And so in a similar way, Paul has been crucified with Christ. He has become dead to the law, to the world, to sin. Paul no longer lives, he says. But Christ lives in him and through him. Now he's underlining that here in verse 14. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me. Which there could be whom? Because it isn't the physical cross that has separated Paul from the world. It's what the cross speaks of. It's Christ on the cross. And when Paul speaks of the world, he's referring, of course, to that which is independent of and antagonistic to God. It's not referring to the planet on which we live, not even referring to those for whom God gave his Son. God loved the world so much that he gave his Son. He's using it in the sense of, do not love the world or anything in the world. That use of the world. That which is against God. And Paul says, not only is the world, that world, dead to me, but I am dead to the world. He means the world doesn't rate him any longer. Paul had become indifferent to the world, and the world had become indifferent to him. His entire focus is on Christ and the cross. And those things were the things that influenced his character and his conduct to such an extent that everything else became insignificant to him. 
And that was reflected in his attitude to the world and the world's attitude to him. And so the cross became a symbol of his separation from the world. One writer says Paul's ideals and outlook have now become so spiritual and unworldly that the world can ignore him, just as if he ceased to be. John Stott says, as a result of boasting only in the cross, we and the world have parted company. Each has been crucified to the other. Previously, we were desperate to be in favor with the world. But now that we have seen ourselves as sinners and Christ crucified as our sin-bearer, we don't care what the world thinks or says or does to us. Well, now we come back to the context of Paul's words, which we described right at the beginning. Why is he writing these things? Well, when the message of Christ crucified becomes everything to us, then the world's emphasis on being circumcised or not simply doesn't matter at all. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts, he says, is a new creation. Those who emphasize the physical, says the apostle, such as circumcision or other religious rites, are on the wrong track entirely. As far as a man's relationship to God is concerned, circumcision is no help, uncircumcision is no hindrance. What really matters is a new creation, and that is only available through the cross of Jesus Christ. And the fact that a man is created anew or born again represents the real difference between him and other people. And that's what Christ requires. That's the distinction he intends to make. So it isn't by conformity to certain rites and customs that a person is accepted by God. It's not by position. It isn't by wealth. It isn't by the color of a person's face. It isn't by mental abilities. The important question is, is a man or woman born again and therefore a new creature in Jesus Christ? To insist on the law as a requirement for acceptance with God will simply bring judgment. That's what the law produces. It cannot change hearts. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, the Spirit can change our hearts, make us right with God. And these are the people, says the Apostle here, who enjoy peace and mercy. So from becoming from being God's enemies, we become his friends. From being strangers, we become family. And from being objects of wrath, we become trophies of grace. And what amazing grace it is. And we may say amen to this. Let me just ask a few questions by way of application. To how many of these questions could you honestly answer yes? Does the message of the cross move you today to surrender yourself to the Christ of the cross as your Lord and Savior? Is the gospel of Christ and his cross, which Paul boasts of here, at the top of the agenda in your church? So that all that you do as a fellowship is to the end that this message might be heard and understood. Are you committed to the preaching of this message? Or are you more inclined to some method which is the latest fashion? I have nothing against looking at methods. 
But what we need to do is to always make sure that the true gospel and its presentation is never relegated in importance either to avoid persecution or to enhance our own reputation. And does your love for Christ and your recognition of the meaning of the cross prompt you to defend the cross against any who would dare to attack it? And does your glorying in the cross motivate you to share this message with others? That's the motivation behind Paul's passionate declaration here as he closes this letter. So, believer, you are allowed to boast, but not about anything concerning yourself. Your only glory is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth Clefane closes her hymn with these words, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place, I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of your face. These are the two lines. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory all, the cross. And that's what Paul is saying here. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for this precious time that we've been able to spend with your word open before us and considering again this wonderful theme which has brought spiritual blessing into our lives. And again, we acknowledge what amazing grace it is. And we pray that you will forgive us if there have ever been occasions when we have been proud of the position that we hold of the fact that uh, we believe certain things and others do not. That we believe certain things uh, in a right way that others do not. And we recognize that all that we have is of your grace. And that should humble us to the dust. And we thank you for this message that's now been entrusted to us to share to others. And we pray that in the circumstances in which you have placed us, that you'll help us to do that. Some perhaps are more limited. Others of us have better opportunities in the sense of greater opportunities. But whatever doors you open for us, we pray that you'll help us to go through them and to take those opportunities to share something of what the cross of Jesus Christ means to us. Thank you for our meditation this evening. Bless it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.